Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9fin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the need-to-know information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield, leveraged loans, and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American Levfin market with US editor Will Cager-Smith, so be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be looking at voting caps, care homes, and we do a deep dive into sure flexibles. But first, the Levfin wrap. Amid immense geopolitical uncertainty, the market has quieted completely in bonds. In loans, Vionet with a euro sterling split 795 million euro TLB, which along with 175 million euros in second lien notes, backs an LBO by uh, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan and PAA Partners, as well as Armour Linac, the manufacturer of thermal transfer ribbons with a 450 million euro TLB. Next up, we have the Covenant Close-Up with Caitlin Carey. Thanks so much for being with us today, Caitlin. And thank you so much for having me, Kat. Caitlin is our lovely head of Covenant Research, and today she's going to be telling us about voting caps. Um, sure. So, um, Kat, where we saw this was actually in a leveraged loan um, for Caldic um, in connection with the um, buyout by Advent. Um, and what we saw there was that they included a provision um, that essentially allowed the company to elect to limit the voting rights of any individual lender together with that lender's affiliates and related funds if the, the, you know, the particular um, investor has multiple funds invested in, in the instrument. It, it caps their voting rights at 15%. Um, and this is at the company's election. So the company could decide if it's favorable to them that they could disapply this cap or raise the cap. But but ultimately what it does is it says that, you know, you know, even if their economic interests, even if they, they were to try to, to buy up more commitments in, in, in the loans, um, they ultimately will not be able to um, represent more than more than 15% of, of the vote um, in any matter that lenders vote on. Um, so this was similar to something that we actually saw um, first in U.S. bond offerings. Um, Ancestry.com got a lot of press um, back in November 2020 um, in connection with their um, buyout by, by Blackstone GIC, um, where they included a 20% voting cap. Um, and so in the bonds, um, usually it takes 30% of holders in order to give notice to the trustee and instruct a, um, an event of default. Um, and, and so what it means to have a 20% voting cap is that, you know, no individual holder is going to be able to, you know, call a default on their own. They're always going to have to work in tandem with another investor. Um, and we've actually seen that in a couple of more recent deals um, Medline. Um, and then in January, we saw this in, in Athena Health. Um, that was, you know, a really big LBO. Um, and, and so, you know, it seems like it's not just a one-off where it's actually becoming sort of a, a trend um, in the most aggressive U.S. bonds. 
Um, and, you know, I think that this is, is, is really dangerous um, because it sort of creates, you know, additional, you know, barriers in, in terms of, you know, investors' ability to, you know, actually, you know, enforce their, their rights under the agreement. Um, it, it shifts the balance of power, um, you know, because the individual funds can't take actions um, on their own, they have to, you know, if, if they if they want to, you know, take an, you know, activist position, it's a distressed fund, you know, they have to, like, you know, get other holders in, you know, sort of like form a group together in order to be able to, to actually enforce. Um, but at the same time, the sponsor can, you know, choose that they can disapply the cap if that would be favorable to them. Um, so it's, it's just, you know, a, a dangerous... Um, kind of road to go down, um, you know, sort of disenfranchising um, in investors above a certain threshold. In the loan context, um, there's also a few other provisions that are specific to, to loans that kind of um, also make the, the balance of power sort of tilted even more in, in the favor of the sponsor and, and the borrower. Um, and, and that, you know, has to do with um, significant restrictions that the loan world has on transferability. So, um, for instance, there is usually um, a restriction on, you know, transfers to um, lenders that are loan to own or distressed. Um, usually that falls away during a payment or insolvency event of default. Um, but, you know, it doesn't usually in, in the recent deals that we've seen fall away anytime sooner than that. So, you know, even if they had, you know, some kind of, um, you know, covenant defaults or, or other, um, you know, default situation, you know, there'd still be a restriction um, or, you know, the bonds have traded way, way down, you know, still a restriction on, on selling to, to loan to own and distressed. Um, and, and then, you know, also, We've seen in some deals um, provisions that restrict transfers that result in individual lenders accumulating um, a, a particular size stake, whether this is you know fifteen or twenty percent of, of of the loans. So even if this is called like it's the first time we're seeing a voting cap, it's not the first time we're seeing a restriction on sort of actually the ability for for lenders to kind of you know, be able to, to kind of accumulate um, that stake. That's the type of thing that we're, we're, we're starting to see in, in um, you know, still in the minority, but, but in, in, in a few um, sponsor-backed um, leveraged loans. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, not the only kind of provisions like that. You know, there's also, you know, yank the bank and, you know, sort of like higher supermajority thresholds to instruct the agent to accelerate. Um, you know, it, it, it seems like the, the voting cap is just taking everything one step further um, so that in, in a scenario of, of distress, um, it's, you know, really difficult to, to get into a position of, of um, you know, being able to, to get the necessary votes that, that, that you would need, um, you know, to, to sort of, you know, control enforcement. It's, it's, um, it just makes it more difficult on the lenders. So, so expect that we are likely to, um, to see this again, given that it's now shown up in a few different U.S. bonds. You know, we've now seen this in European loan. Um, and, and I think the other thing to mention with Caldic is it actually cleared the market in Caldic you know, there were a number of doc changes that did get made in Caldic, 
um, changes to um, you know improve the the, the, the covenants for the for the lenders. But they didn't take out this voting cap provision, so that stayed in and did clear the market. So so ultimately, that seems um, seems fairly dangerous. Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly, our ESG segment. And today with me, I have for his debut recording, Sam Stevens, one of our newest ESG analysts. Thanks very much for joining today. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. So today we're going to be speaking about care homes uh, in light of the Orpea controversy following the release of Victor Castanet's book, The Grave Diggers, which was released on the 26th of January which alleged that Europe's largest for-profit care home or payer had food rationing and a lack of care, patients being left in soiled underwear in their nursing homes. Uh, Castanet also alleged uh, that there was a bribe of 15 million euros uh, to cease his investigation. Of course, Orpea has rejected these allegations and engaged with lawyers to take legal action. Uh, but at the same time, shares in the business have dropped from 86 euros on the 20th of January to less than 40 euros just a week later. And it's 500 million euros worth of senior unsecured notes dropped from comfortably around par to 83.57 points as of the 21st of February. Orpea has also delayed results until April the 30th until the conclusion of audits from Grant Thornton and A&M. So where does that leave our sub-investment grade issuers? They haven't been nearly as affected as the listed competitors. However, Domus V's loans have been the worst affected. In particular, its 150 million euro TLB maturing in 2024 is now indicated at 95.73 points. And Domus V, Colisee and German nursing home Allerheim, which is owned by Nordic Capital, all saw uh, the biggest dips in its uh, loan-indicated prices uh, since COVID. Accounts are reviewing their positions, in particularly in the French loans, but it's certainly a wait-and-see situation here. But the main question here is, is this isolated to a payer, or is it an industry issue which could affect our sub-investment grade issuers and could lead to things like nursing quotas or increased regulation, uh, which would of course be quite expensive for our issuers. In addition, it raises interesting questions about what private equity ownership means for this important social service. Sam, can you tell us uh, a bit, a little bit about the debate surrounding this tension between for-profit leveraged businesses providing elder care? Yes. So, um, you know, there have been reports uh, that look into the sort of disparity between a for-profit model, a private model of, of healthcare, and in particular in adult social care, and a, a sort of public or charity-focused model. Um, so for a good report on this is by Finance Vendor and the Heinrich Boll Foundation, uh, which looked at sort of private equity activity. They They looked through the sort of private equity playbook of sort of debt servicing and, and they came up with some findings which although they they looked particularly at private equity that they managed to see the the entire scope of the sort of european uh, adult care market so in the uh, finance vendor and heinrich boll foundation report for example where they looked at private equity 
activity in care homes and adult care, they noticed that despite looking specifically at private equity, they noticed that the for-profit model uh, provided some interesting findings, which were that there was less training, higher staff turnover and lower pay. A case in the UK was, of course, uh, Four Seasons, where they they had financial pressures uh, placed onto them. They failed to meet debt interest payments, and then they went into the ownership of H2 Capital Partners, who were sort of the majority owner of, uh, of Four Seasons. The public authorities in this case had to step in to find alternative arrangements for residents. So you can see that this interplay between a model that produces good returns, often double digits, uh, as quoted in the Finance Vendor report, but it's also producing these sort of typical typical uh, negative implications for stakeholders. But this is a really hotly debated topic. Uh, there's been studies uh, highlighted by the American Investment Council from Duke, the University of California, the University of Michigan, and, and several others that show uh, either better care from private equity-owned uh, nursing homes uh, or similar care. Bysiders have spoken about how this is a great example of how ESG crosses over with credit and the importance of doing your ESG homework beforehand, but it looks like fewer margin ratchets and sustainability-linked loans are dedicated towards healthcare governance than to environmentalism. Um, so in general, the White and Case uh, Leverage Loans ESG Tracker uh, found four examples of customer patient satisfaction um, throughout 2021, while in comparison, reduction in emissions had 20. So that's customer and patient satisfaction. What do you think is stopping us from from focusing a bit more on the S rather than the E in the ESG? Well, environmental problems, especially when it comes to climate change, which is the sort of main environmental concern that, that we see in, in a lot of different inv- investment initiatives and, and we see a lot of climate change initiatives as well. Um, so carbon emissions are very quantifiable. If you can measure your scope one, two and three emissions, which a lot more companies are doing, you can provide a number you know, of that total emissions factor or you can even calculate that as, a, as an intensity figure, you know, using your revenue. So, you know, if we take care homes, which comparably to other industries, usually have a, a much lower intensity figure, which is a, it's a good comparable tool. So you can have a you can have an environmental comparison, say, with a manufacturing company or a cement company, which will have much higher intensity of something like emissions. Or you know even even something like waste production, these things are nice and easy to compare. And so, for an investor who's interested in climate change, they can easily look to a cement company versus a care home provider and say, well, quite clearly, our portfolio does better for for you know for our clients or you know for our mandate, which is you know climate change focused. We'd be better off picking the social care company. However, when it comes to social factors, they're so wide ranging and they're so diverse across different companies and across different sectors that you'll often find that they're not so comparable or or possibly not quantifiable as as easy as an environmental factor. So for a care home, for example, you'd be looking at maybe one of the key material factors would be accidents or incidents involving the patients. Now, 
if this was a factor that was included into an investment model, it might it might not be so comparable to other things such as a cement company where you would look at accidents and incidents, but these would be involving a different stakeholder entirely, and that would be the employees. How, you know, how many health and safety incidents do we have or lost time in? So you end up with a portfolio that might be quite wide-reaching. You'd have to have so many different social metrics to capture all of the comparable or non-comparable things that you'd be interested in. Next up, I have with me editor Chris Haffenden, who's also our restructuring expert. Thank you for being with us today, Chris. Uh, no problem, Kat. It's great to be back. And the lovely Mikhail Skipala, a fellow loans reporter. Thanks for being with us today, Mikhail. Pleasure to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about sure flexibles. Mikhail, why do we find this one interesting? There's too many levels that we find interesting here, and... Um... It is the first time that we have seen uh, in post-crisis level market, a company going straight from pricing a primary loan. Um, so syndicating in part and in less than, I believe, five months, uh, going down a straight restructuring route. Uh, the price reflected that um, immediately as it went from par to 65 and now it's bottoming to around 70. So there was a lot to digest uh, from the shock announcement that the company gave to lenders. And um, to our knowledge, it was the first communication that the company had in, in around four months. So imagine you're, you're a level loan lender. You thought you pick up a company that's going to be stable paying its debt. And now you're suddenly having to deal with picking advisor, realizing what to do with your position. There's a lot of facets around this uh, restructuring announcements because there are still ongoing compliance and accounting investigations. So the lenders at this moment are still in blank because this co- the company uh, hasn't yet reported uh, any numbers. So um, they're still waiting from the company to explain why they fired the former management, and if if there's even if there's any cash leak, if it's just uh, uh, an issue about how, as we reported, the uh, IFRS guidelines were used. Therefore, a lot of lenders are holding paper that they have no any idea what the value is, and there's a lot of rumors floating around uh, around lenders. The lenders who are invested uh, in sure, uh, try to not panic and, and wait what the company will bring um, on uh, the waiting call uh, this week. Other buysiders are also um, trying to assess if sure is an exaggerated story or it's a actually very troubled company and if it's worth it to jump in on, on, a, on a high discount in the 70s. So we know on the lender side that Houlihan Loki has been chosen as financial advisor and Millbank has been chosen as legal advisor. How did this process uh, come underway? The immediate thing that happened was that the lenders actually had a call amongst themselves um, the day after the, the sort of shock announcement that they got, which is just a short statement from the company. Uh, that they'd appointed advisors and that there were some issues. So uh, last Wednesday, JP Morgan, the lead bank, had a call for lenders and the, the idea was to get lenders comfortable with the idea of appointing their own advisors. So there was uh, pitches. And on the company side? Uh, as well as the PJT and Allen and Overy that uh, we have um, already sort of identified and has been mentioned by the company in the statement. There... Following the, the replacement of the management, which happened 
in uh, end of December, there was new management were put in place beginning of January, and at that point they also appointed Alvarez and Marcel to look through look through the financial statements, and also they've got uh, KPMG to do a review of 2020 and 2021 numbers. Uh, the idea is that. Alvarez and Marcel are going to come up with a revised business plan based on the revised numbers. There's going to be uh, cash flow forecasts uh, and then there's going to be business plan to review and then the KPMG, if the lenders are happy, will flip to doing an independent business review of the new business plan and the new numbers, which you know, gives some comfort to lenders that they've been independently reviewed. So that is all uh, being put together. Um, our understanding is that there won't be a full report presented on the 24th. It will just be the initial findings because there's still a lot of work to be done. The other aspect of this, I think, has been concerning to the lenders is the the fact that the company, or sorry, the sponsors had to put in this 20 million shareholder loan to boost liquidity and that will actually fund the company through to the beginning of May, which is when they think that the... Uh, you know, the, the, the restructuring plan should be presented to lenders. So I think that's also concerning what's actually happened to that sort of 30 to 50 million's worth of liquidity that was there at the company from the September loan issue. Uh, and so why, where, where did that money go? Um, we have heard from the company side that this was mostly due to sort of working capital outflow of around about 30 million. Um, and that the, as Mikhail alluded to, that the accounting issues mostly reflect a sort of IFRS accounting and that you know, certain bits of capitalization that shouldn't have been capitalized and therefore that's boosted EBITDA uh, and uh, obviously the leverage has been reported lower than it should be. But I think the main concern at the moment for lenders is trying to work out what is the sort of the, the new state of the business and whether that will actually result in any potential impairment uh, you know, to them. Um, so I think those are the sort of the, the sort of main issues. I suppose the other thing that the lenders are, are keen to establish as well is, you know, were the accounts misstated at the time of the the original lending, and therefore is there something that you know could could be done from them from a litigation perspective, because at the time management would have actually had to made representations about the accuracy of the financial statements. So that's another potential sort of legal angle, you know, that they could explore if things don't work out well for them. So a lot of the trouble that the company is now facing is down to the management. What what happened here? Uh, yes, there has been uh, management moves uh, and um, companies uh, very direct that it, the former management, so the former CEO and CFO have been fired um, in December and new management started in as 1st of January. So the, the new... CFO Matthias Bauer came in on 1st January as well as uh, Juan Luis Martinez Riga, who is a former chief of uh, the Vision Edge. So he was with the company since 2018. As we spoke, sources close to the company, they have been very adamant about that the company is not facing any liquidity shortfalls. And uh, we, we've seen other news publications reporting that the company is facing liquidity shortfalls. So the company still, at least for now, is, is uh, saying that they they do have the cash until May 2022, and they just need to figure out the the issues with the accounting and how. But there are no uh, issues to its revenue streams. And uh, that 23 million uh, shareholder loan that uh, Chris mentioned was just to give the the new management a, a buffer if they if they need to. 
Yeah, and I think I, I would add on the liquidity issues. I mean, this company is uh, having the same sort of issues that some of the other packaging companies have. So you know, the, their largest uh, exposure is to resin prices. And though even though they have sort of direct pass-throughs for around about 70% of their sales, you know, there are quarterly adjustments on the remainder and that results in sort of lags to three to six months. So with the sort of sharp rises in oil and resin prices, there could be something there. Um, so the other thing is access to the revolving credit facility. One thing that we put out in our article last week was that the RCF, which was currently 15 million drawn, the company cannot access that RCF at the moment because of this concerns of, on legal issues for the uh, for the company and its management. Um, partly because of you know there could be forward events, looking at events of default. So if effectively, if you draw on the RCF and there is and you knowingly think that there's a liquidity event or potential default further down the line, that's uh, that's an issue for you on, from a legal perspective. And also that there is this repeating management representation issue. So the whole idea is that if you're just in in situ as management, you're still trying to get a handle on the financials. Um, it, it's very difficult for you from a legal perspective to uh, you know to, to look at drawing on that RCF. So our understanding is at the meeting and potentially in the sort of days and weeks afterwards that the, there will be some form of standstill that will be requested from lenders uh, and potentially a request to have access to the RCF. Now that's going to be a difficult one because if there is any liquidity issues, you know, um, if the lenders don't allow access to the RCF, then that could cause problems for the company, and they might not have enough liquidity and time to uh, to work through its issues um, uh, before it runs out of cash. I think that, but you know, lenders will be also very wary about giving access to you know further liquidity draws if they don't actually have a, a good enough picture of actually what's actually going on with the business. So I think that's going to be an interesting. Um, thing to look at over the next sort of few days and weeks. There's a lot of rumors floating around and the lenders don't try to act on the rumors, obviously, and it's trying to get any information from the company as they can, but they don't expect to get any additional information until the call. Um, so information is very scattered and coming from various places. So far, we are not hearing any um, opinions about lenders trying to use any legal ways to take over the company or, or any alternative route that the, that the company proposed as, as the restructuring route, which honestly makes sense because they're just in a waiting mode, completely blind without any accounts. So at this point, they, they cannot tell if they want to take over this company because they actually don't know what is the value of the company. And this is the big question mark about, about this whole situation. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week on Cloud9Fin. Many thanks to Sam, to Caitlin, to Mikhail and to Chris and of course to you too, listener. Tune in for the US edition next week and the European pod the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.